Sloan here. Welcome to my podcast series where I talk to some people I know about the influences, turning points and lessons from their lives. Today I'm interviewing David Gertine who is a knowledge management and organizational learning consultant and expert, a guru some would say. Uh So uh, David, welcome. Welcome Paul. So can you tell me when and where were you born? I was born in 1948, October 1948, in in Worcester, and uh, I guess my parents uh, got me for free because the NHS was founded just a few months earlier in uh, in July 48. Really? So, yeah. And uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Grew up in Worcester, very happy childhood. Nothing terribly eventful in my in my childhood. Good parents. Walked to the school in the morning when I was uh, when I was a child. What were you good at at school? I'm not so sure what I was good at, I, but what I enjoyed was the, was the was the scientific side of things from a very early age. Um, what, let's just trying to think back now. In 1957, Sputnik was launched, mm-hmm. so that was the, the start of the space race, and so I, that that really, um, I guess, just fired my imagination about uh, science and space. So, so, so really, quite early on. So you did a degree in? I did a degree in physics, in at, physics. Um, at Lancaster, at Lancaster Polytechnic in uh, in Coventry. It's now it's now Coventry University, um, but I was sponsored by what was then Hawker Siddeley Dynamics. It was now a space uh, company. So you were a student apprentice. I was a student. As was I. I think you were as well in, <laughs> yes. in, in the nuclear. Yes, in industry, yeah, yeah, which was which was in some ways a great way to start because you know I was getting paid a wage and it was a very you know, practical hands-on sort of experience. And you learned some skills too. Learned some skills. Oh, I spent three months, six months on the shop floor in a um, in a machine shop. Yes. Machining lumps of metal. I did that too, with a lathe. With a lathe. I hated it, to be <laughs> honest. I hated it. But in, in, in retrospect, it was, uh, yes. it was a good thing. Good. So how did you get into computing and software? Well, that's quite a simple one. Um, although by accident, like a lot of things in life, I was coming to the end of my four-year apprenticeship at Hawker Siddeley. I got an interview in the computer-aided design department. I was told they were looking for an electronics engineer, which wasn't me, but I went along for the interview. There was a a fun story here. My boss-to-be, he asked me the question. He said, David, if you had a problem, but you didn't know what it was, how would you solve it? And I said, well, that's a strange sort of question. It's a good question. Good question, yeah. And um, I thought, well, I'd better try to answer this. I said, well, I'd, I'd write down on a piece of paper what the problem wasn't. And that would give me maybe some feeling for it and help me solve it. And he said, fine. He just accepted that as an answer. And then on my first day in the job, um, I said to him, that question you asked me, <laughs> what was the answer? What were you looking for? He said, I was just looking for a response. If you, could, if you couldn't answer it, that would have been a bad thing. The fact that you attempted to answer it, that's what I was looking mm. for. And, and that, that, that little story and that little lesson has sort of stuck with me, stuck with me ever since. But anyway, the first day of that job, I was given a, a Fortran manual and a, and a listing, and uh, taught and modified this program. I was, I hadn't done any programming. I, had, um, uh, I wasn't sent on a course. I was just thrown in the deep end, and uh, ended up writing Fortran programs on ICR mainframes yeah. in those days, 
help solve engineering problems for the for the engineers within the company. That's how I got into computing. I learned Fortran too the early uh, days. So um, I could still write in Fortran. <laughs> it's not a valuable skill anymore. I'm told it is. I'm, I'm, I'm told there's a lot of legacy software where, where, where they Surely need... not. Yes. Someone told me the other day, I thought, I'll look at maybe I can do that in my spare time. <laughs> and then what happened? That's a very long story short. Um, I ended up, well, we ended up buying a, a, prime, a prime mini computer back in 19, hmm, 1975, probably. Um, to do a lot of the engineering work and I ended up moving to Prime and um, they, they set up in 1978 they set up a um, R&D establishment in Bedford so I, I moved to Prime Computer and there I was working on sort of early communication software some, you know, some of the first sort of email and instant messaging software back in 1978 um, worked for Prime for five years and then moved on and uh, Yes, 1983. I joined Lotus Development, the uh, one, two, three fame. I know, famous company. Yes, yes of course you know. <laughs> so I was with Ashton Tate at the same that's time. Right, yeah. So that so that was quite a move from uh, mini computers to personal computers. Yeah. Well, I, again, I've, I've gone from mainframes to minis to, to personal yes. computers to pocket computers. So what role did you join Lotus in? I was. Um, what was that? I was European development manager and what we were doing, localizing, basically translating, um, one, two, three into French, German and Italian. And presumably it had never been designed for translation. No, it hadn't. <laughs> it was written in assembler and all the, you, you know the story, yeah. everything was all embedded in the code. All the messages were embedded, yes. The first, um, the first translations were a nightmare. Yes. And because uh, out of that, I became an expert in the things that you needed to do, because it wasn't just about the translation. Um, because shortly after, we wanted to do a Japanese version, we wanted to do an Arabic version. And, you know, so, so you, you got the, the the kanji character set, you got got the right to left flow of characters, um, you got date formats, all sorts of different cultural dimensions, different number formats, different currency formats. There's actually a lot to, oh, yeah. to, to doing it, as you, as you well know. And I became an expert in what it took to do that. And so the, the culmination of my time in Lotus, um, I was offered the job. Actually, this is the best title I've ever had of international czar. So, oh. so my job czar, my job was to, to move to Cambridge, Massachusetts, their headquarters as international czar, to really work, work right across the organization, but, but mainly the development organization, to ensure that all the products were designed so they could be cost-effectively localised yes. from day one. And that was a phenomenal job, and it was a hell of a challenging job, because what I didn't realise until I got there, that all the general managers and development managers, they were targeted on North American sales only. They, they, they weren't given any, any international targets. So they didn't care yes. whether it was international or not. So how did you persuade them? I, I made friends with them. Yes. I, I, I took them out for lunch. I had beers with them. I, I got to know them. Got some, you know, and did it through relationships rather than because I had no authoritative power to do it. So were you there when IBM took over? No, I wasn't. No. When did you leave? IBM took over in about '94, and I left about '92, '93. So what did you do next? Well, I was maybe redundant. I, I, I came back. I came back to the UK. And that's my opportunity. That was that was a turning point for me because it was a chance to 
work for myself. And so you started your own business? Different. I started my own business, and, and guess what? I started out um, as a Lotus Notes kind of consultant come developer because I've been very involved yes. with notes in terms of, of ensuring that it was it was localised. And because that in its day was an amazing was an amazing product, but I think it still is in some ways. So, it's a, so how did you get into the whole knowledge cafe scene? Well, I guess there were two steps because I started out as a notes consultant, notes developer, um, so doing just a lot of techie stuff. But of course I was building collaborative applications in notes. And all the problems and all the issues were nothing to do with the technology. Notes was amazing technology in so much you could build applications and roll them out globally. But all the issues I faced were people issues. You know, people failing to work together, people failing to communicate, people failing to collaborate. Um, and I guess I'd always had an interest in the people side of things. And so sl slowly I started to get more interested in the people side. And now we're talking about 95, 96. The World Wide Web has just kind of come along and revolutionised everything. And this strange thing called knowledge management is starting to emerge more, I think, from a technology route. Just the fact that organisations now through their intranets and their internets could communicate and say, share information and to some degree collaborate on a worldwide scale. I mean, that, that was actually impossible um, yeah. prior to then. And so I kind of started to get interested more from more from the technical viewpoint. So when did you conceive the, the concept of the cafe? Well, the, the cafe, I started to conceive the concept of the cafe, I guess about the year 2000, because the first cafe I ran was in London in September 2002. But the idea, the idea for it went back before then. So what is a knowledge cafe? Well, let's just let's explain what happened. I mean, I used to just explain the rationale behind it. Um, I used to go up to London to some knowledge management talks that were organised by um, some alumni at the City University Business School. I also used to speak at Cairn conferences. And if you take so many of the talks that the presenters were given, they were literally death by PowerPoint. I could never quite understand you know, these talks in the evening. Um, why a speaker, you know, who knows they've only got 30, 40 minutes to speak, will... Um, you know, have maybe a hundred PowerPoint slides and they're totally overrun, no time for questions, no time for interaction. And the you know, the best part of those evenings was the conversations we had down the pub afterwards. And essentially I, I wanted to bring those sorts of conversations into the room, into the lecture theatre if you like, um, to make things really as more interesting and more engaging and to involve people because a lot of the time, especially in emerging topics like knowledge management, the people in the room had more knowledge and more understanding, uh, you know, diversity of perspectives than the presenters. Than the presenter. <clears throat> and so I, I wanted to draw draw on that knowledge, which to mm. me was about knowledge management. And so I say I run the first one in the Strand Palace Hotel in September 2002. So we're going back 15 years. And what's the structure of a, a knowledge cafe and how is it different from just any ordinary business meeting? It's a very simple structure at one level, although I've learnt over the years there's a lot of subtlety to it. That the whole idea is, fundamentally, is that the speaker, you still have a speaker, the speaker gets to speak for maybe only five or ten minutes, at the most twenty minutes, I think twenty minutes is, is really tops. And the idea is to talk about a topic that you know, is of interest to, to the group, maybe something that's a little bit um, controversial. 
um, and pose and pose a question, and again an open-ended question, something that's going to ignite people's curiosity, um, the trigger, trigger the conversation. So they pose the question, and then the key thing here is that I've got people sitting in the room in groups of three or four. I've discovered over the years that that's the ideal size, and there's, there's research to back that up as well, that the ideal size for a small group conversation is three, three or four. Um, anything above that, and it starts to become a, like a series of little, little yeah. presentations to each other. So people are sitting, ideally at small round tables, I often say to have a good conversation, you need to be in touching distance of yeah. each other. Um, so they have that conversation, say for 10 or 15 minutes, and then I simply say, could a few people, I stop the conversation and say, could a few people stand up and change tables? And I try not to be too prescriptive, like one of the philosophies behind the cafe is that I'm, in some ways I, I am trying to bring that pub into the room. Yeah. So I don't want to be too prescriptive. I want to do the minimal I need to do to you know, encourage the conversation. So I, I don't set too many rules. So I simply say, could a few people change tables? If people want to stay where they, where they, where they are, they can. If they want to move, they can move. And, and simply continue the conversation. So how many of these have you run now? If I, if I'd run 30 a year for the last 15 years, what's that? 450. 450. Yeah. I, I wish I kept count. Um, I probably could go back to my records and, and figure it out, but uh, I mean, it's, it's not so many. And how many countries have you done them in? I did calculate it at one time, maybe about 30. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a few. Because that's the other thing I started to do, and this was the interesting thing about the cafe. I started to run them um, around the world, and so I learned a lot about people and a lot about culture. So give me an example and some, and of... Some fascinating stories. Of, so, so what are these stories about running it in a different country and, and what you learned about the culture? Okay, I, th I, think, I think the best one, there's uh, a couple actually, but this, this, one's, this one's my favourite by far. Um, let, let me just... Continue complete the cafe process so people change tables three times so we have three small group conversations and then I have a whole group conversation to, com to complete things where um, everyone comes together in a circle and we, we then have the final conversation a whole group conversation in the circle but the key thing is that people move around the room and change tables so I, I did a, a series of cafes for, for IBM Back at the launch of Lotus Connections some some years ago, I did a cafe in uh, in Kuala Lumpur. People have they, they've had a talk, they've had the question, they've had their first round of conversation. It's time to change tables. So I stop the conversation and I say, now could a few people move tables? Guess what happened? Nobody moved. Nobody moved. Nobody moved. They sat there and looked at me. They were waiting for. Instructions, were they? Well, I'd given them instructions. I said, you know, could a few people move? And before I could do anything, my host, IBM, I think he's Malay Chinese, so just, just interesting, just, 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 just the culture. Um, he said, David, he said, don't worry, he says, I understand the culture. I will make them move for you. Now, the one thing I've learned about the cafes is never to panic, is that, you know, everything, everything's going to work out. And so I'm thinking, this is going to be interesting. You're going to make them, are you? So he said, could everyone please stand up? Everybody stood up. He said, now, could a few people move tables? What do you think happened? Everybody moved. No, nobody moved. Nobody moved. Nobody moved. 
And then some very brave soul in the front row, he, he almost hissed this, he said, David said earlier, he was in a cafe, he never makes anybody do anything they don't want to do. We don't want to move. And so I said, fine, we don't have to move. We'll carry on the conversations at your table. Now, in retrospect, what I, what I failed to realise maybe is this was the first time I'd run a cafe in a situation where the people in the room were, in, well, in this case, IBM customers. So they had sat in their groups. So Patronus were at one table, and Maybank were at another. Yeah. They had sat together with the people that they knew, people that they worked with. And, and they were quite comfortable talking to the people that they knew. Here, just given the culture, I was asking them to get up and join, basically, another table and a different But that's where the value is, meeting that's people. That's where the value is. I know, I know. All right. But I, was, I, I tried to do another one um, recently in Indonesia, a, a virtual one through this Zoom technology I'm exper experimenting with. And the people there, before agreeing to take part, they wanted to know in the small groups which, who, who they would be talking with. And they wanted veto as to, as, to, as to which group they were in. So if they felt they were in a group and there was somebody in that group from an organizational company that they weren't happy about, they wanted to say, no, could you put me in another group? So they, they wanted this whole thing to be controlled. So they're much more inhibited in that sense, because in Europe you have no problem mixing no, groups. No, exactly. Um, People quite like it. There's, there's a, lot, you know, a lot I learned in that Southeastern Asian culture, the whole Asian culture, about face. Things, things have got to, you've got to look good, things have got to look good. There's a, there's a few things I say about that, about that culture. First of all, it's about how you look. So there's, there's that fear of making yourself look, look bad by saying something yeah. stupid. There's a fear of, say, asking a lecturer or somebody in authority a question that they can't answer. Yes. And causing them to look bad. Or your boss. Or your boss. They were so do you think it's a strength of Western business culture that we do take the mickey out of each other and people are prepared to have a little bit of a laugh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's too. It's too deferential sometimes. It's too it? deferential. This this deference to authority is is killing. I mean, I read somewhere many years ago, and I, I wish I'd clicked the article. It, they reckoned that in India, if a nurse saw a doctor essentially get the dose for a medicine wrong for a patient, she would not challenge him. She would not challenge him, even if they knew it was going to kill the patient. Yes. Yes, they've had the same issue with pilots and co-pilots. They have to train co-pilots to challenge pilots because they normally they would defer to them. Yes, in yeah. Asian cultures. Yeah, that's right. Um, there was a big issue, wasn't there, with Korean Airlines? Yeah. some years ago. Good. So, what else has happened at a cafe? Has, has anything profound or life-changing happened? Has anyone had an insight or a, a business decision which would had big ramifications? The original cafes. The original concept was to have an alternative to you know, the traditional PowerPoint presentation. And so the first ones I did, the first maybe dozen or so I did, were public cafes. And then, I think maybe after the first year or so, I did my very first knowledge cafe you know, inside an organisation. And it was part of a two-day workshop <coughs> I was doing on uh, about knowledge sharing. And so the, the question I posed to the group in the room was, what are the barriers to knowledge sharing? And how might you overcome them? Now, I'd 
I've posed that question many times before in a public setting, but here I, I made it specific. What are the barriers to knowledge sharing in your organisation? And we'd only got a few minutes into the you know, sort of first round of conversation, and one of the women managers stood up and said, David, stop. You've just got to stop. I was a little bit afraid that something terrible had gone wrong. She said, no, no, no. She said, um, so many issues are coming up here. We've got to capture them. Because in the you know, kind of alternative to the presentation mm -hmm. setting, there was no need to capture anything. Now, what I didn't realise, or I did realise, but I hadn't appreciated the significance, was there were three groups in the room, and they never, they never really talked to each other. So all sorts of issues and problems were coming up because this was the first time they were having a conversation. Um, it was an organisation that was doing a lot of um, research around global warming and yes. various global threats. So it was like a research and report writing organisation. They had people like somebody here working for one client, somebody here working for another client, but writing a very similar report. So why not come together and do the research together, even if the reports are maybe significantly different. So that wasn't happening. Yes. And and they didn't. And they, but they didn't know. They didn't know it because they weren't communicating. Yeah. For me, then that, that was a big aha moment. Oh, okay. There's an application for this within in organisations yeah. to help people surface not only the problems and issues that they've got, but also to surface the opportunities and things that they have. So how did you? crystallise the outcomes of a cafe? How did you assign actions? Do you, do you get people to take responsibilities or do you just let it run? This, this is in some ways the million dollar question. It's a, it's a question that um, I've struggled with actually in some ways for the last 15 years. The, the power of the, of the cafe in many ways is the fact that you're not trying to capture anything. It's that flow of tacit knowledge the fact that people can relax and be open, you know, that, 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 that there aren't any predetermined outcomes. You know, again, it's, it's trying to get that sort of conversation you might have down the, down the pub or over, or over a coffee. Um, and of course, as soon as you try to capture things and write things down and maybe introduce flip charts and what have you, you inhibit the dynamic of the conversation. And so you might capture stuff, but in doing so, you might miss the really good insights or the really interesting paths you might go down if you weren't trying to capture things. So there's that dynamic there as to... Yes, but if you just have the conversation and there's no change afterwards... Well, again, you, you know, you take things away. I, well, I always used to say in that, that basic form of cafe where I don't capture anything, the outcomes are what you take away in your head and everyone takes away something yes. different in their head and they may or may not act on it. And that's very difficult for a lot of managers because... It's not, it's not measurable. There was one thing I, I, I kind of modified the cafe a little. Um, so in, in some circumstances, you can at least capture something. And that's if I've got the time or the purpose is such that we need to do it. I will get each person at the end of the cafe to share with everybody else one actionable insight, one thing that they kind of commit yes. to take away and do differently as a result of the cafe. You can either just share that verbally, um, or you could capture it on a um, on a post-it note and stick it on the wall or or card, and collect it in, and that kind of minimally interferes with the 
with you know with, with the flow of the conversation. And it's right at the end. And it's and it's and it's and it's right at the end. But um, you know, I realise. I, I think there's sort of this. I've got this kind of concept of the cafe at one end of the spectrum in its pure form, where you capture nothing, and it's really about the conversation, and it's the conversation that's important. And then at the other end of the spectrum, the conversation is still important, but you do need to capture things. And if, if you if you're looking to solve problems, if you're looking for opportunities, you want to capture you want yeah. to capture those issues. And what I say in, in in that circumstance is, okay, do it, but think really hard about why you're doing it, and whether you're going to do anything with whatever it is that you capture, and then do it in a way that minimally interferes with the actual conversation. Mm. So maybe you could have somebody sitting outside, somebody not involved in the conversation itself, taking notes. I, I was involved in one some years ago with a large pharmaceutical company where they actually put microphones on every table and they recorded the conversation of these. Um, uh, they were doctors um, mm. uh, discussing uh, cancer treatment and uh, they recorded the conversations and they transcribed them and then the medical profession professional went through the transcripts and highlighted the interesting parts mm. of the conversation where something might be gleaned about cancer treatment. And you've created a community worldwide, is that right? It's a community. Um, in, in, it's, in reality, it's much more of a network than a community. I mean, I publish a newsletter, um, 17 or 18 years old now. I publish, publish it every month for the last yes, I think, I get 18, that. 18 years. And how that. many people are in the community? It's about 23,000. It's, it's, it's not a huge number, but it's, uh, it's, it's substantial. So effectively, you have franchised the idea in the sense that people run their own cafes now without your involvement. I think the thing about the cafe is I could, I could never... Um, copyright at all. Um, you, know, you haven't trademarked the name? Or, 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 no, because the, the, the name was, it was in existence uh, long before yes. I, was, uh, I was using it and there were similar processes like the World Cafe. Um, so I've, I've never tried to, to, to do anything like that with it. Um, I'm always just trying to encourage people and organisations to run the cafes yes. in, their, in, their, in, their own, uh, in their own form. So looking back on your career, what would you say is your proudest achievement? Creating that cafe. Yeah. It's got to be. Um, That's what you're famous for, if you're famous. <laughs> if, if I'm famous. <laughs> and, uh, what, what, yes, and, and what would you say is, is the dumbest thing you've ever do, done? What's the, the biggest mistake you think you've made? I was reflecting on that earlier, and I think I've made lots and lots of little ones, but I, I, I couldn't recall anything that I'd say was a major, major mistake. Um, but it really got me thinking about my life. Maybe not so much mistake, but what I would do differently if I had my time over again. Um, and what would you do differently? I did a degree in physics. Now everything I'm doing is all about people and all about psychology. Yes. So I, I, I guess I'd do a degree in psychology, maybe anthropology. See, I, I grew up sort of in this sort of scientific era. Yes. And I talked about the space race earlier in Sputnik. Um, so everything was about how stars worked, you know, it's yes. all about physics and mechanics. And as I got older, I realised that stuff's the easy stuff. The, the real difficult stuff is us, us people. People. Yeah. So talking about people, we all think we're good at conversation. Um, we do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And people think they're, they're doing it really well at work and communicating well at work. Are they fooling themselves? By and large, I think all of us, all of us fool, fool ourselves. I'd like to think that I was a good conversationist. If I stop and listen to myself and observe myself, I'm not. <laughs> so in... In what respect are conversations not happening in organisations 
in what sense is communication failing? I think too much we talk at each other rather than with each other. Um, it comes back to those PowerPoint presentations. Okay, I, I got upset with them, if you like, in a, in a conference-type setting. But how many PowerPoint presentations take place in organizations and internal briefings and sales meetings? All the time. You, all the time. And the, they, by and large, are they are one way. There's, somebody, there's somebody at the front of the room presenting to the rest of the room. And any questions, and they'll take one or two questions, and they're usually... Usually, people asking questions that they already know the answer to, trying to make themselves look good. There's no real engagement with the topics or the issues. There's no real conversation. There's no sometimes there's no real learning going on. And I, th I think that's where the cafe could be used most effectively. Or part of it is maybe not so much the cafe. It's, it's taking the principles of the cafe, just getting people to talk to each other. You know, why would you not give people that opportunity? That In diverse, cross-functional groups. Exactly, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So looking back, who's been the biggest influence on you in your life? I, I think the, the first person that really had a big influence on me, if I look back, was Stephen Covey and his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, back in, back in about 1989. There was Stephen's work itself, which again was all about people, all about mm. relationships, all about the way we work together. But it was also the people that that Stephen introduced me to. So people like, um, let's go back, um, Henry David Thoreau, the American author who yeah. spent a, what, a year being self-sufficient in the woods of, in the woods of Massachusetts. Um, people like, um, oh, who have we got? Scott Peck, the yeah. Rosalind Travelled, um, the psychologist. Um, Viktor Frankl, a man such a meaning. He introduced me through the, through the book to a lot of really, really interesting people. Again, see, my background was in science and computers and technology, and now there's all these exciting people talking about what it was to be human. David, if you could distill your learning and wisdom into a couple of key messages for leaders in businesses today, what are the key lessons, the key messages you'd like to share? I think one, given all my work with Large Cafe, talk to each other more, make more time to have those conversations. I think that's a big part of it. But there's another part of it that I keep coming back to all the time, and that's about caring more. I think about caring for your work and caring for each other. I just get, get this feeling, you know, we, we, I look at all the problems in the world today and say, you know, what's the, what's the root cause of all of this? What, what could we do that would address so many of the, of the problems? And it, it seems to keep coming back to just caring a little bit more for what we do and caring more for the people that we, that we work with. I think if we could just do that, we could transform the world. I'm sure you're right. So, David, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, Paul.